Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice piante. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. Happy Easter. This is being recorded Easter evening. And I got to tell you, this is not... This is not an Easter episode per se. We had ham. Uh, it was ham that I made, and I make ham several times per year. There are several ham-centric holidays, and I like to make a very good, high-quality ham every time. But we're not doing ham today, this week. This week, uh, I made Saturday night, I made this, um, what do you call it, like a surf and turf mixed grill type of thing. And this episode is not so much about, how would you say, the substance of, of the meal itself. We had fillets, lobster tail, the shrimp skewers, Hasselbeck potatoes, and asparagus. All simple stuff. I mean, look, it's, it's protein, it's vegetation, it's whatever. You apply heat to it. And then it cooks and it's done. I'm not going to do a primer on like how, how to grill a steak or, you know, when is seafood done or something like that. Instead, what I want to focus on are some of the fun little, they're not even accoutrements. They're just like highlights, <laughs> highlights in the, in the sense of a highlighter highlights the text on a page. These are flavor highlights applied to the proteins and and the potato and stuff like that. Uh, first up is we're going to be making a steak rub with coffee as the primary flavor note. Okay. This is a, it's reminiscent of Heritage Craft Butcher's coffee steak rub. It's certainly a little different because uh, I don't have the recipe for that one anymore, quite frankly, but I have a pretty good idea of what flavor notes we need to hit in there to get the desired effect. Secondly, uh, we are going to make a roasted garlic aioli that we will use on those Hasselbeck potatoes. That is fantastic. That really turned out great. I actually saved the leftovers and put it in a little jar in the fridge because I am looking forward to putting that on something else this week. I don't know what yet. And finally, oh, I, I guess it'd be a, a combination. What is a little technique for making Hasselbeck potatoes? Real simple. You, you, you create a guide, you know, for yourself so that you don't cut too deep through the potato body itself. And then also a real fresh chopped garlic, olive oil, garlic chive and parsley. Uh, it's, not, it's not really a marinade, more of a drench for the seafood. You know, if you basically we could make this whole mix grill without uh, using butter or any dairy products, and instead uh, we turned up the the butter notes in the aioli and uh, basically made a butterless shrimp scampi type of thing. Okay, obviously check out the imager link in the show notes for all of the pictures, and then I think I'm going to try posting this as a thread on Twitter. Like I've been trying really hard to use Twitter the past couple of months. And um, I don't know. I feel like I could be more productive on it rather than just like, hey, here's a new episode. Here's a link to the Imager album. And in the Imager album, it says, oh, this is part of a podcast. Go to this. But yada, yada, yada. There are a lot of like points of abstraction there that I would prefer to avoid. 
And if I could just post directly what the the, the crux of, of the thing is, which is a photograph on each each tweet and a thread with a description of like what we're doing here, uh, you know, yada, yada, yada. Also, before we get into the actual making of the food stuff, uh, I also made the first batch of charcoal of the year that I used to grill all this stuff. So we'll do a real quick refresher on how you make charcoal because it's super duper easy and it can it can be cost efficient material efficient it can be efficient if you already have a lot of the uh the conditions in prerequisite you know basically this is the spring we had a very windy spring very windy winter so I had all kinds of branches out in the yard that I had to clean up prior to mowing the lawn for the first time. So I was able to kind of put together a fairly substantial bonfire, uh, which is uh, necessary uh, in the method that I use to make charcoal. So what I do to make charcoal is I use a metal garbage can, you know, like a, an Oscar the Grouch house, <laughs> essentially. And you pack that with wood of various formats if you do if you just do cordwood like you know firewood uh you'll get bigger chunks of charcoal it's and it's really good you get real nice big light crinkly uh chunks of charcoal uh at the in the end at the end result of this process uh this time i used very small format wood branches basically broken up into smaller pieces and then crammed very tightly into this garbage can and that does a couple of things. One, there's less empty space in the garbage can. You can get more actual carbon mass into the volume of the container by using smaller pieces. You know, like if you put basketballs into a garbage can, you will get many fewer basketballs by volume than if you fill a garbage can with marbles okay but what we do is we pack this full of our wood material um oh the the small branches uh the second benefit aside from just having a a, a denser pack of of bio, biological material is that it tends to cook off the volatile organic compounds i think the vocs of the wood basically the parts of the wood that aren't carbon cooks them off very cleanly and completely in on each individual uh, what would you say um particle you know one one branch will completely uh cook out everything that isn't carbon to a to a greater extent than a piece of cordwood will what that does is it creates a very hot clean burn on the back end similar to the small format japanese grills like the teppanyaki grill or the yakitori grill where they're using small charcoal and it's very clean and hot and precise it's like it's kind of like cooking over a reverse blowtorch so to speak okay so that was really nice so what we do is we pack that in there and we put the lid on nice and tight what we want to do is we want to bake at very high temperatures the in internal stuff, you know, the wood, without having enough oxygen present for it to combust and to, well, it's going to oxidize, but not basically combustion. Combustion and being engulfed in flames. That way we're not going to burn this wood down to ash. It will get to the charcoal stage 
and uh, that'll be it. You know, there won't be enough oxygen for it to go beyond that stage. So what we do is we get that in there, we get the, the lid on, and then we basically bury the garbage can in the makings of a bonfire, a brush pile, branches, limbs, leaves, all the kind of crap that you clean up out of your yard. And you build a giant bonfire around it. And then you let it burn down. And then you, you know, rake it all back in around the garbage can, let it burn down more. And then you pick up more sticks and limbs and whatever in the in the yard. And you put those around it and it burns. And you let it go for most of the day. Well, I mean, you let it go all day. You let it go overnight because then the the metal of the can will be cool enough the following day that you can pick it up and bring it back to wherever you're going to store your charcoal. And it's really simple. Uh, though there's different ways to make charcoal. Sometimes they bury it under like an earthen mound and kind of bury it under sod and get it smoldering and let it smolder through without getting enough oxygen in there to ignite. Um, other times you'll see people will just basically build a fire and then extinguish it with water when everything has uh, turned to charcoal, but it hasn't gone beyond that point to ash, whatever. If you check out like, oh, uh, let's say YouTube channel, Primitive Technique or something, the guy, the one where the guy doesn't talk, but he just makes things in the woods. He has a good um, episode on making charcoal three different ways. And uh, my way is a little bit more modern because he doesn't have things like Oscar the Grouch condominiums to make charcoal in. But anyway, so I made charcoal first, then I used that charcoal in the grill to cook off our other things. But let's start off with our coffee steak rub. And uh, if you check the show notes, we'll have the precise measurements here, which, uh, spoiler alert, they're all pretty much either a teaspoon a tablespoon, a half teaspoon, or multiple teaspoons. Okay. Starting from uh, the top of the photograph and going clockwise and ending in the center, we have just regular salt, cumin, paprika, black pepper, onion powder, honey powder. Yeah, kind of an oddball ingredient there. I'll put a link to where you can buy honey powder on Amazon. It's cool. It's basically just granulated honey. It's wonderful. It's, it's, um, it's versatile. Yeah, I would say. Okay. So honey powder, mustard powder, granulated garlic, ground coriander, and then espresso. Now, do you have to use espresso? No, you can use just any ground coffee. Espresso is very finely ground. So it will sort of incorporate well with the rest of the spices without overpowering things from a texture side. It's one thing to, you know, eat a piece of steak that has a dry rub on it with espresso as the base. Um, texturally, you're not going to get, it's not going to differentiate much from the just natural crust you get from like the Mylard reaction or cooking over charcoal or whatever. Um, if you have a larger format uh, coffee, like so, like a large grain coffee, like uh, French press grind, a, a, a French press grind level, that will you'll feel that on the surface of your steak more than the espresso. So that's that's what we went with that. Um, you can make this in fairly large quantities and store it in a jar or in a little bag or a container or something like that. And it'll last a very long time because all of these individual spices are already like shelf stable. 
uh, levels of desiccation, of dryness. So all of these things came out of a jar that sits on your shelf. So you combine them all together and guess what? You can put them into another jar and just keep on your shelf. Really handy. Okay. Next up, let's talk about our roasted garlic aioli. Now, if you are going to roast garlic, you can totally just take a one, two, three big heads of garlic, cut the top off, uh, maybe about a half inch down, just so that you expose all of the cloves inside of the head of garlic. Drizzle with olive oil. You can wrap them in aluminum foil, um, or you can add a little salt to it also. Wrap them in aluminum foil, just throw them in the oven on the rack, 300 degrees for an hour, whatever. What I did though, because my because my garlic is small, like every episode, I know, I, it's like I have a complex. My garlic's so small, I have to explain it. Yes, it's garlic that I grow. It's some you know heirloom variety that is unchanged for 200 years. So it's small. It's not these giant grocery store heads of garlic. Because they're small, I still cut the tops off, but instead of wrapping them up in a package of aluminum foil, I put them in a very small cast iron pan and put foil over the top, not unlike a Jiffy Pop container, okay? And what that does is uh, it, it lets you, I don't know, have a, have a little mini oven inside of your oven that you roast the garlic with, but you slide that into a 300 degree oven, let it go for an hour, and then, you know, you can turn the oven off, just leave it in there to cool down until you're ready to use it. Or you can pull it out and process it at that point. But what you want to do is after that is roasted, carefully squeeze out all these soft, buttery cloves of garlic from the head of garlic. And try to do it so that you don't get a bunch of the garlic paper like stuck to your fingers and then mixed in with the, the cloves of garlic. But squeeze them out onto a cutting board. And we want those to cool down significantly because... In making our aioli, which, uh, you know, it's mayonnaise, you know, aioli is just the hipster fancy. I mean, yes. Okay. There's probably a distinct and very uh, pedantic culinary distinction between aioli and flavored mayonnaise. But uh, I am going to say that we are basically going to make a, a, a delicious mayonnaise and then we're going to incorporate the, uh, the roasted garlic into it okay and that allows us that gives is an affordance to us to call it aioli and sound fancier than what it is okay so uh mayonnaise how do you make it egg yolks a little bit of vinegar uh usually for some reason a lot of homemade mayonnaises will incorporate some dijon mustard and i have no complaints about that because it is super delicious uh a little bit of salt and then a neutral oil now, a lot of recipes are going to tell you to use vegetable oil or some very neutral seed oil or something like that. Uh, there are healthier oils to use. Olive oil can be kind of polarizing in mayonnaise because then you're going to end up with a mayonnaise that tastes very strongly of olive oil, which might not be a flavor profile that you're looking for in producing mayonnaise. You might want something a little bit more neutral, but you also don't want to just use canola or or vegetable or sunflower seed oil or something like that because of deleterious health effects. So uh, I will recommend avocado oil as a fairly neutrally flavored oil, fairly neutral color. You know, we're going to get a nice 
golden mayonnaise out of this. It's not going to be super dark. It's not going to be super brown. It's just going to, the, the oil itself is not going to contribute much to the color or the flavor of the finished product and it is very healthy. Okay. So what we're going to do is use two egg yolks. So you want to separate your egg yolks from the egg whites and put the egg yolks into a mixing bowl. I'm using a stainless steel bowl, relatively cool. You know, you like, you don't want to just pull it out of the dishwasher and it's real hot. You want it to be at least room temperature. You don't have to put it in the freezer either. You just, just make sure you're bowlless and hot. I don't know why I point this out. I'm just afraid somebody's going to use a, you know, 180 degree bowl and make scrambled eggs or something. I don't know. Anyway, get your egg yolks into the bowl, add a little bit of vinegar. I'm using, uh, so with this, you, you want to add some acid. A lot of times you'll add lemon juice. If you don't add lemon juice, sometimes you use a fancy vinegar, like a chestnut vinegar or champagne vinegar. Both of those would be wonderful. I personally, I love the flavor of white balsamic vinegar, which may be an abomination unto itself, but I don't care. You know, one of the greatest things in the world is a salad of cucumbers and tomatoes fresh out of the garden, salt, pepper, olive oil, white balsamic vinegar. Second best is that same thing with regular balsamic vinegar. Okay. But white balsamic, because you don't want to add a real dark color to your aioli. So you add that in there. Now here's the key with a, uh, electric can mixer beaters, you know, the things that you make cookie dough with, um, or you can use a whisk, but boy, you'll have forearms like Popeye when you're done. Okay. So I use just the, uh, the hand mixer. Start whipping up those egg yolks. You want to do this on medium to medium high, and eventually we're just going to top out at the maximum speed. But get those egg yolks all whipped up and nice and creamy looking. And then you are going to add the equivalent of about three quarters of a cup of this avocado oil a few drops at a time. Okay, so it's really useful to use like the oil bottle with the, the, the little choker drizzler cocktail pour thing on the top and just let that oil drip in there like three drips at a time make sure it beat it until you don't see any oil sitting on the top of the the egg yolk a few more drips keep going and this is going to take a while but you will notice at some point and it will be it will be a it's not going to be a, a, a stark line of demarcation it's not going to be like oh bada boom bada bing it has transformed It'll just be like, eventually you're going to be like, oh, wait, this is turning into mayonnaise. I didn't even realize it until just now. But it's going to fluff up. What you're doing is you're emulsifying this oil. The, the individual particles of oil are being beaten into the protein and the water content of the egg yolk. Uh, the vinegar is acting as it's denaturing these proteins so they don't get tough and stringy. And then, you know, after you've added, I don't know, a couple of tablespoons of oil and you have like a nice kind of a pudding started, <laughs> a custard base from your egg yolks, add in your Dijon mustard and that will be the emulsifier. Dijon mustard is basically mustard powder. I mean, mustard in general is powdered mustard seed mixed with vinegar and water and maybe some other spices or whatever. But those individual grains of mustard seed material will aid in the emulsifying process here. And what you're doing is you're basically beating out the oil into these individual microscopic droplets 
and suspending them in a matrix of water and protein and stuff like that to create the body of the mayonnaise. So once you've added your your Dijon mustard, you know, after you've added three tablespoons of oil and beaten it into there, um, then you're going to go at a relatively slow pace, three or four drops of oil at a time until you have incorporated, uh, like I said, three quarters of a cup of oil into, into this mayonnaise essentially. And it will take on a, a pudding like mayonnaise consistency. It is unmistakable. You will know that you've done a good job and you will almost absolutely not fail at doing this. Once you have this mayonnaise texture achieved, you can dump in your, your smashed roasted garlic cloves and continue to beat your aioli with your beaters and incorporate that garlic throughout the whole thing. Okay. And then once that's done, uh, holy cow, you'll want to put this on everything. You'll want to put it on toast, on potatoes, dip French fries in it. I mean, you're going to be, you're going to turn into a, a hoity-toity French person eating your McDonald's fries with a knife and a fork and dipping them in mayonnaise, just like they do in the old country. It's, it's really, really something else. Now let's get to our, our drench, our garlic oil drench for the seafood. Uh, we, one of the ways that we preserve our usually bountiful garlic crop is to chop it up in the food processor into relatively uniform uh, particles. They, they appear to be cubes, but really they're just little tiny boulders of chopped garlic and then keep them in uh, a jar of olive oil in the refrigerator. It works great. It makes it um, very convenient when you just need to add garlic to a dish irrespective of the texture of the garlic. It's like you're making a stir fry or uh, a, a soup or something. It's like, let's get some garlic in here. Every, every garlic doesn't have to originate by smashing the clove with the blade of the knife and then chopping it up and trying to achieve this consistency, you know, from scratch every time. We can just take a tablespoon of it out of the jar. It is encased in uh, olive oil and being in the fridge, that olive oil will probably eventually set up uh, to a solid and it's basically like um, garlic butter at this point. Fantastic. Get that into a bowl with some chopped garlic chive. Garlic chive is a wonderful type of allium, uh, chive, uh, green, oniony type of flour that tastes remarkably like garlic. It's fantastic. And the best thing is you buy it once. You buy it once when you're a wee lad and you plant it somewhere outside, they seed themselves prolifically and they spread very similarly and uh, similar to the tenacity and the voraciousness of mint. In fact, the patio going from the house to the barn, one side is mostly mint and the other side is mostly garlic chive. And it all came from one plant eight years ago. You know what I mean? So it's really cool. So garlic chive, get a get a nice handful of that, chop it up real fine, put it in, some flat leaf parsley, and the juice of a lemon. You know, try to strain the seeds out, but get that in there, whip it up. It's in the, the uh, it's in the family of uh, a chimichurri, but not quite. It's sort of like intermediary between a chimichurri without quite as many different uh, herbs, a variety of herbs and flavors. And what I, I mean, uh, what I call, it is called a board sauce, 
where this is where you chop up a bunch of French, uh, French, a bunch of fresh herbs on a cutting board. And then you take meat off of a grill, like a flank steak or a skirt steak, or even a ribeye or a T-bone or something. And you put it right on top of those herbs on the cutting board. The heat from the meat and the juices from the meat kind of all intermingle with these herbs. And, and as you, you cut the meat there for service, you're creating a sauce beneath it on the board consisting of the juices from the meat, the salt, garlic, and these fresh herbs or whatever. It's, it's great. It's a real summertime treat. It's great with spatchcock chickens or flank steaks or whatever. Anyway, what we're making here, I digress, is intermediary between, um, you know, uh, a chimichurri, which is, you know, I think it was like episode five or six, somewhere down there where we did flank steak with chimichurri, which is usually a little thicker and um, the very runny, liquidy, uh, garlicky, acidic board sauce. Anyway, we're making that letting the olive oil from the from the preserved garlic kind of melt down at room temperature and then just brushing that on to our grilled lobster tails and grilled shrimp skewers and, and whatnot. Now, finally, getting to the technique part. Now, check out the pictures here for how this works. Hasselback potatoes. These are, you know, like a russet potato. Scrub the skins really nice. Get, get a bunch of the dirt off and and kind of thin out the skin of the potato so that the whole thing is 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 palatable, like it has a good mouth feel or whatever. Then what you do is you you make a whole bunch of slices across, like as if you were slicing them into potato chips, but you don't go all the way through. You leave like, I don't know, between two and four millimeters of connection at the bottom. So what you end up with is a sort of like fanning accordion uh, structure to the potato. Uh, the, the face, the, the cut faces of these individual slices will stick together, um, very readily when the potato is fresh. But once you drizzle it with a little bit of oil, hit it with some salt, bake it in the oven, 400 degrees for between 45 minutes and an hour, you know, check on it after 45 minutes. Once it starts browning up along the edges, um, you'll know that it's done because you're, you have a lot more surface area exposed to the heat as opposed to a baked potato but as it cooks as those surfaces dry out as the skin sort of contracts as it loses moisture through evaporation that potato is going to uh, tighten up on the bottom where it's connected and it's going to fan out very evenly and beautifully on the top where all the cuts are now uh, the biggest caveat in making Hasselback potatoes is the potential to accidentally cut all the way through the potato. It, it, it would suck if you if you make like 30 of these perfectly even, uh, perfect depth cuts and you're almost done, you have like three or four to go, and then you accidentally cut all the way through and you just lop the end of the potato off. It's like, oh, it's gonna be so beautiful and I messed it up. So what you do is you take a pair of chopsticks and you, you, you brace them lengthwise on either side of the potato to create a cutting guide and then you can cut down and you what you want to do is you still want to try to stop the slice before you hit the chopsticks but if you go too far the chopstick is going to act as a stop for your knife so it can't go all the way down to the cutting board and actually cut the potato in half second caveat with this is the ends of the potato so the potato isn't perfectly 
it certainly isn't cylindrical. It is uh, ovoid, you know, it's, it's ovate, ovoid. It's, it's shaped like an egg, which means that on the ends, it curves up. It, it's like you can cut through the end of the potato all the way and lop the end of it off without taking the knife all the way down to the cutting board. So you still got to be super careful at the ends. But once you get into the middle, the real meat of the potato, at that point, those, um, those chopsticks are going to act as a sensible guide you know, a backstop to mistakes, a last, a, a, it is the barrier of last resort before slicing all the way through to the cutting board and cutting it off there. So, uh, yeah, you know, it, they're relatively simple. Um, it just, it, it, it takes a little bit of care and attention. Like maybe, maybe turn the podcast, yeah, maybe turn the podcast off while you're making these cuts so that you can actually focus on what you're doing. Also, you can you can kind of take up the the novice vegetable cutting technique of sawing back and forth very quickly like normally whenever you cut vegetation you kind of want to drive the knife through the flesh of the vegetable and you're chopping and slicing you're not like sawing back and forth a lot but with the potato if you make a, a very quick sawing action back and forth as you sink the knife into the flesh of the of the vegetable or of the of the tuber, you can you can kind of get a feel for how deep you're going because you're 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 stepping down. You're you're making progress incrementally with each slice, as opposed to trying to gauge the amount of force that you're putting into the knife to push it through the potato, but then to back that force off before you've gone too far. That can be a delicate maneuver. So uh, saw away, saw away. Aside from that, yeah, throw everything on the grill. We bake it hot. Uh, the steaks, take them up to like, uh, I don't know, 125, 130 degree internal temperature. Uh, make sure that the the shrimp get, get cooked through, cook the uh, lobster tails through, do the, uh, you can do the asparagus on the grill, but I was running out of space, so I did that in a, in a cast iron pan. I mean, this stuff's simple. You know, it's just cooking protein, it's cooking vegetables, it's cooking potatoes. But the the place where you really kick it up a notch is with the roasted garlic aioli, the coffee steak rub. You know, you're drenching your seafood with this really bright, flavorful, garlicky, herby uh, oil concoction. And then, you know, the cherry on the Sunday, of course, is cooking everything on a big charge of charcoal that you made yourself because that is just cool it is as cool as it is hot and it is super duper hot because it's high quality charcoal all right so that's it for this week hope you guys had a wonderful easter and i hope that uh, you're hungry for good food after gorging yourself with cappuccino melt away eggs and and reese's peanut butter rabbits and all that other kind of stuff peeps cadbury cream eggs my second favorite egg behind ostrich egg. All right. Uh, talk to you guys next week.